everyone. Welcome to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite books and poems and how these works have shaped how they think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm co-PI of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life Project, which, along with this podcast, is generously supported by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled Transfiguring Love and the Brothers Karamazov, I speak with fellow philosopher David McPherson about what it means to embrace the world in spite of the evil and suffering we find in it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This afternoon, I am joined by Professor David McPherson of Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. David received his PhD from Marquette in 2013, and he works in ethics, especially virtue ethics, social and political philosophy, and philosophy of religion. His recent book, Spirituality and the Good Life, is out from Cambridge University Press and is available on Amazon. Hi, David. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on your program. I'm excited you're here. I should also, I would be remiss if I did not say that David was also a participant in one of our summer seminars in the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project. We've had a bunch of conversations about love, and you've written some beautiful work on love, especially something you call transfiguring love, which you associate with something called the saintly ideal. So we're going to talk about that this afternoon in relation to the book that you specifically chose for this podcast episode, which is is Dostoevsky's very famous, very long novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Can you tell us a bit about Dostoevsky? So Dostoevsky, you know, he's a 19th century Russian novelist, and he his dates were 1821 to 1881. Uh, and he was living in a time of a lot of social uh, transformation, a lot of change. There was these several different generations of westernizing reformers. They're particularly secularizing as well. And so I think one of the things that has drawn me to Dostoevsky's work in particular is the way that he tries to work out the significance of of religion in human life. He himself was caught up in this generation of reformers in the 1840s who were sort of kind of liberal romantic, but there was, you know, some kind of uh, more radical elements in it towards sort of radical transformation of society. He actually ended up going to Siberia for about 10 years. Well, it, it wasn't vacation. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not exactly. It was sort of for, you know, his thought crimes at that point. And I think he had a, a profound spiritual transformation being amongst other Russians and sort of seeing a simple kind of piety, even in prison. And as I recall, I think he only had uh, the Gospel of John, uh, and he he read it over and over again. And so he, he had this sort of profound spiritual transformation in which I think he came to see sort of the, the waywardness of uh, this sort of westernizing, uh, secularizing kind of elite intellectual class that he had participated in. And he also saw some of the dangers of where it would lead. And I think he saw that coming into the the 1960s, this more radical generation of reformers that were materialist, utilitarian. Uh, he refers to them as nihilists. And uh, so a lot of his work is sort of taken up with confronting this sort of intellectual trend towards unrooted ideas that are, are coming into Russia that trying to transform society from without and largely in a sort of secularizing direction. And so Dostoevsky is really trying to work out sort of the significance of religion in human life uh, and whether, you know, it's something that 
that's just going to go away. That kind of view of secularization no longer seems to be true. It, uh, religion, it seems, is perennial. But the question is, what's its importance? Can it be used for good? Can it be used for bad? Uh, so I think Dostoevsky works out a lot of those questions. And probably above all, in the book we're going to be talking about, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, which was his last book published just before his death, the real action is, is at the level of ideas. But I think, I think it's not unimportant to see ideas worked out in literature and sort of through the forms of life that they embody. And so I think I think Dostoevsky has a number of important things to teach us about the human person, about religion and its relationship to uh, meaning in life and to uh, morality and how to think about the problem of evil uh, and how to live in light of evil and suffering in the world in a meaningful way. Let's go back just one second and talk about his time. It's in prison, right? Yeah. In Siberia. Yeah, that's right. So he's an atheist prior to this experience. I mean, I think that's a, it's a complicated question. I mean, I think there's a religious upbringing there, but he's sort of working through these ideas, you know, sort of secularizing stamp. He's a person who struggled with faith all of his life. You know, he said he'll, he's a child of this century, a child of doubt, and he'll be till they close the coffin on his grave. But I, I think it's fair to say that the the importance that religion or faith assumed in his life became much more prominent in a way that he saw the conflict uh, more starkly between these westernizing reformers and the kind of faith that informed the life of sort of the ordinary Russian person. His time in prison is basically his dark night of the soul. I mean, it's a time of profound physical and spiritual suffering for him. Yeah, that's right. And he wrote a book called The House of the Dead, which was sort of an account of of that experience. <laughs> and by that title alone, I mean, I, I think uh, a dark night of the soul is, is a fair, fair way to describe it. Although I think it was, you know, a very transformative uh, in brought light. And I think, as I mentioned, the reading of the Gospel of John was perhaps something of a, you know, to make a reference to St. Paul, a kind of Damascus experience for him. And so there was some light in it as well, <laughs> I suppose. Not completely dark. It's part of the transformation. Yeah. Right. But it kind of sets him on this path of having to think in a deep existential way about what we tend to call the problem of suffering. If God is omnibenevolent, if he's all good and he's all powerful, why is there so much suffering? It seems like this period of time for him is critical and somehow must be informing what's going on in the Brothers K. And it strikes me that one of the central things that's trying to get worked out is something like what we might call a philosophical anthropology or some picture of the human person. You know, what's up with us human beings, half beast, half angel? But it strikes me that each brother is somehow supposed to embody a, a different conception of man or at least a different philosophical perspective. One of the things that's so gripping about the novel is precisely that it explores the depths of the human person, right? The, the depths of, of character and of psychology as part of sort of this 
philosophical tapestry. Yeah, we might call it a kind of philosophical anthropology. And I do think uh, the different brothers do represent different pictures. So yeah, this sensual or what gets called the Karamazov side, the oldest brother, Dmitri, he refers to this as having this insect within you. And I think it sort of gives this sense of something more animalistic that needs to be transformed. But I think importantly, it can't be denied either, right? It needs to be, it needs to be transformed, uh, raised up as it were, brought within uh, some kind of ethical spiritual formation that will sort of guide it towards uh, what's best in our humanity. And, and so you have this other side, this Guignon refers to this as the idealist side of the self. So you have this sensual Karamazov side, and then you have this idealist side that is sort of, you know, acting for higher ideals. So human beings are distinct among animals and being rational, linguistic, right? And this really transforms things in a, a quite profound way. Uh, and not necessarily just to the good. I mean, so some of this is how we can aspire to a kind of saintly life, uh, profoundly transformed life oriented towards the good. We can also take a certain kind of significant significance in uh, more problematic motivations, uh, sort of certain kinds of dark desires. So one thing Ivan says in his conversation with the youngest brother, Alyosha, is to talk about bestial cruelty is actually unfair to the beast because only human beings can be so artfully cruel. It's actually uh, what's distinctive in our humanity that allows for both what's best in our humanity and what's worst, right? And so we, we actually don't go right by just denying uh, either side. But what we need, in fact, is uh, integration of these two sides of the self. I think you see this in the different brothers. Dimitri, the oldest, uh, he's the eldest brother, and he's something of a sensualist. Uh, the, you know, I already mentioned sort of that comment about having the, the insect within him, right? Uh, he's, he's, he's a sensualist, but he also feels the pull of uh, spiritual ideals. And so one of, the, one of the famous lines in the Brothers Karamazov comes from Dimitri, where he says, you know, he feels pulled between the ideal of the Virgin Mary or the Madonna and uh, sort of Sodom, right, to sort of sensualist pursuits. And he says here, the devil and God are fighting and the battlefield is the human heart, right? And so he's torn between these. And so you see the battle at work in his life, right? And is he going to come to a kind of transformation or is he going to fall into a sensualist life? Ivan is the second son and he is an atheist intellectual influenced by Western Enlightenment ideas. He's particularly representative of this second generation of reformers in the 60s that uh, were much more radical, materialist, utilitarian, but which Dostoevsky ultimately thought was a form of nihilism. He's famous for saying that if God does not exist, everything is permissible. And that's going to be an important idea that gets played out in the novel. And he, he really raises the problem of evil and suffering with Alyosha, the younger brother. But Ivan, in some sense, he, he has this thirst for life. He has the Karamazov side, but he wants to deny it. He wants to, as it were, uh, sort of take the stance of purity away from it. And this really leads him to uh, a rejection of life in the world. In a way, Ivan has two paths that he sees open to him. One is this sort of radical transformation of society and of humanity. He talks about building the Tower of Babel, sort of a kind of radical socialist program to change humanity. But the other side is, uh, if, if he loses hope in that kind of utopian project, is the path of, of suicide, despair and suicide. So he denies, to some extent, the 
Karamazov side, or he recoils from it, recoils from this, maybe you might see as sort of the darker elements of our humanity. So that's that's a sort of uh, fateful move there. Alyosha is the youngest, and you might say he's sort of the most in tune with uh, the sort of higher ideals and the spiritual element of humanity. But he also acknowledges he has this Karamazov side within him. He's a, a novice in the monastery, training under Father Zosima, the great elder of the monastery. I think Alyosha's sort of putatively as sort of the hero of the novel, we're part to see his transformation. In fact, he's uh, commissioned, as it were, to not stay in the monastery, but to live out in the world, live the spiritual life in the world and family life. But I certainly I think you, you have him consciously striving to sort of integrate these two sides of the self into some uh, higher ideal for human life. So uh, the central conflict really is, is between the father, Fyodor, who I mentioned is a pure sensualist who denies any spiritual ideals or any higher ideals, between him and Dmitri over their inheritance, but not just over their inheritance, but also over a woman, Grushenka. But Dmitri, for his part, is engaged to Katerina. Katerina, for her part, is in love with Ivan. Ultimately, you have the murder of Fyodor. And the ensuing investigation of that, really the heart of the action, so to speak, is in the realm of ideas, right? As you see these different characters live out different ways of life, embodying different fundamental perspectives in different ways of dealing with these, what we've called these two sides of the self. You know, is, is sort of the ideal human person, the exemplar, just the one who is well integrated, whose animality conforms to his spirituality? Is it a kind of elevation of animality or is it a transcendence? I think the goal is, is to strive for a kind of integration in light of certain ideals for humanity that uh, are best going to achieve that integration of the psyche and allow us to live well as human beings. And so part of the question is, what are those ideals? What are the kinds of visions for humanity that will best foster a well-lived human life? I think Dostoevsky's own view is, I mean, he says this as much in his letters, is articulated through Father Zosman in the teachings that are, are given in the book on love, and but also on, you know, a certain kind of path of spiritual practice that allows us to take those elements of our humanity and try to raise them up into a transformed life that is on the path to a kind of saintliness. I, mean, I think he really sees the spiritual condition on a sort of continuum between complete self-enclosure and then on the other end, a kind of self-transcendence and love for others. And so I think a number of his characters are sort of caught in between, right? Dimitri is sort of a good example of that. There are other characters who seem completely, uh, as it were, on the self-enclosure side. So uh, the father, Theodore, is very much on uh, this sort of totally, as it were, closed within himself. And then uh, on the other end is someone like Zosima, who's sort of at the far reaches of a kind of self-transcending love. You know, you have this ethic of love or ethic of self solidarity in Dostoevsky that we really become most fully human as we unite ourselves to humanity. And I think we'll see this in Zosma's teachings, that uh, his two fundamental teachings are that life is paradise. So that's a direct contrast to, to Ivan, who wants to reject life in the world. And connected to this is that we're all responsible to each other, right? And th so through active love for others, we make ourselves responsible. And so this is the path of a kind of self-transcending love. 
it's really the ideal of Christ. He says the image of Christ is the image before us for which we have to strive. And without that image of Christ, we would fall into despair. And so you see a number of sort of saintly exemplars in Dostoevsky's uh, novels. And Father Zosima is certainly that and the Brothers Karamazov. I guess I'm interested in the contrast that's supposed to be at play between this sort of vision coming out of Zosima. I think Alyosha is supposed to be like a side of us that uh, responding to Zosima's example that that he's, he's really sort of I mean, he's very young, and to some extent, I think he's depicted as somewhat naive, but maybe naive in a good way, sort of not overly callous, that he's able to respond to Zosima's sort of saintly kind of love, sort of his imitation of Christ. And I, I think part of why uh, Alyosha is receptive to that is that uh, Dostoevsky shows the different upbringings of the three boys and you know they were sort of passed around from different people because Fyodor the father ignored his responsibilities but Alyosha among all of them uh, had some something more of a religious upbringing and connection with uh, his mother who was very religious and uh, a kind of bond of love there that uh, I think serves in his memory so one one issue that Dostoevsky brings up is the, the importance of, of memory from your childhood and how that can preserve you in life if those memories are life-giving. So I, I think in some ways we're supposed to be, we're supposed to feel ourselves as maybe pulled between the different brothers. You know, you can see something of Ivan's, you know, and I think even even uh, Dostoevsky himself contained aspects of these these three brothers, Dmitry, Ivan, and Alyosha. Well, I identify with Ivan. Well, I, I certainly... I certainly identify with Yvonne in many respects. It's obvious, you know, we're the intellectuals. I have a lot of Yvonne in me, but I want to be an Alyosha striving for, to imitate that Christ-like uh, ideal of uh, love, you know. I think really love, not just for humanity, but for the world, the kind of yes saying to the world, that it's good. Modeling God in Genesis, you know, creating the world and saying it is good. I think ultimately what Zosima really models is a kind of affirmative stance to the world, not a rejection of the world, but an affirmative stance that accepts one's place within it and says it's good. Maybe we're in a somewhat similar place in terms of we can feel the pull of Yvonne, but there's this attraction as well to the vision of human life, the transfigured vision, so to speak, of uh, Zosima. It seems to me that a lot of people can come along and say, sure, yeah, you got to have love, you got to have friends. But really, the perfect person would be Pericles, not Christ. So the exemplar for humans would be someone who is just, they've been raised well, they have justice and fortitude and temperance and practical wisdom. They don't exercise sort of disordered loves. They give to others what is due to them, and they are out there building and maintaining a just social order. And in the meantime, they have transformed their animal self, right? They have temperance. They have fortitude. So they're not cowards, and they're not gluttons. And look, why isn't that sufficient? What's the what's the problem with this vision? One thing is, I think, partly depends upon our view of the mixed bagness of human nature that Dostoevsky really emphasizes, the sort of uh, more problematic elements. And, I, and I, I do think it's probably fair to say that Plato did more than Aristotle to acknowledge this within the psyche, sort of warring elements, right? You think about his sort of multi-headed beast in the Republic, right? That Aristotle gives, a, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, somewhat 
uh, optimistic view of human nature. So in part, you don't need a kind of radical transformation or to use a biblical term, uh, you don't need metanoia or, or conversion or rebirth as much be if you don't have this sense, you know, what in theological terminology we might call original sin, the sense of human life being in some way out of joint, that it needs to be brought into alignment. I think a lot of the great religious traditions have had this sense that life is out of joint, not only in the social world, but that also relates more fundamentally within us. That uh, the disorder we see in the world is also partly a result of the disorder within us, and that that needs to be brought to some order and to some, to be, you know, as we were mentioning before, kind of transformed in light of some higher ideal. And so the second part of that is, what is the ideal for human life? And I think this is, again, where we come back to philosophical anthropology. What is it, in fact, that sort of meets the needs of the human heart? And I think this is really exemplified in Dostoevsky, these, these higher spiritual ideals. I mean, one thing you see in a number of his novels and, and in the Brothers Karamazov is this, this sense that human beings, they want something to love and to worship, something to bow down before. And this is something that plays out in the Brothers Karamazov as well. Uh, you see this, and it's part of Dmitri's own spiritual longings, that human beings, we want to give our lives to something, I think I think is the, the philosophical anthropology. There's some, we, we want to find that thing which is reverence-worthy, right? Worthy of worship in some way. I, mean, I think Dostoevsky's view is that if we don't have something for which we we orient our lives in devotion and love and even worship and reverence, that we'll fall into despair. I mean, it's really, we need something like that to give the kind of meaning to our lives that is redemptive and can help us get through suffering in life. There are these characters who just deny that, and so they deny the higher side of the self, this idealist side of the self, as I, I mentioned, the philosopher Charles Guignon calls it. And so I think it's, it's possible for people to live without that, in a sense, but they, they live in the acknowledgement of it, at least in their, the question is, what is sort of the most fitting object of our love and worship, right? And of course, the uh, Thomistic answer is, of course, that God is, right? God is perfect in goodness and in every way. But why couldn't it just be the world? Dasama is kind of always saying, well, you have to love life and you love love the world. Well, fine, but why do I have to love some transcendent God who's outside of In part, I think Zosima thinks when we begin to love the world, we, we want to love the source of the world, you know, which obviously on a theistic view is, is God. But I think without God giving a kind of, where, where life is seen in light of a, a purpose or a teleological understanding, as it were, a purposeful view of things as ordered towards the good, that the last word in the universe is not simply tragic, that the good wins in the end. Uh, it may be, as Flannery O'Connor puts it, in the long run, but there's a kind of uh, buoyancy to the good, as philosopher John Cottingham puts it, that uh, that we can affirm the world is good. We need some way, some vision of the world by which we can see it as good. And so, I mean, I think a good contrast is Nietzsche. So Nietzsche, you know, he wants this sort of affirmative stance to the world, but it's not clear what's the intelligibility of that. Why is the world worth affirming? Uh, and I think for Nietzsche, it ultimately is, well, it's, it's more, the, the answer lies more on the, the side of the subject than on the side of the object, because it's sort of an expression of our will to power. So the greatest sort of self-overcoming for Nietzsche is to get us to this point where we can affirm everything, amor fati, affirm fate, even in spite of the, the misery of the world, uh, we can somehow still affirm it. But we, there's not really a vision there 
of what is worth affirming in the world. Why is life worth affirming? And of course, Nietzsche wasn't willing to affirm all aspects of the world, including the weak, for instance, right? It was not a very, uh, far from a, an egalitarian kind of response that you get, for instance, in Christianity, where, uh, you know, every human being is made in the image of God. So I think it is like, what is the worldview that can make sense of this all-embracing love by which we affirm the world? Camus, you know, in the myth of Sisyphus, the guiding question is, why not just kill yourself? Because the world is meaningless and what's the point? So really, like the fundamental question of philosophy, he says, is why why don't you just end it? I think this is obviously a question for Yvonne. It's interesting, you know, for Camus, the question arises because the world is meaningless. But like Sisyphus, we're just meant to keep pushing our, you know, Sisyphus is that great Greek figure who is condemned to just push this giant rock up a hill and then it falls down and he has to push it up again. And it's the paradigmatic case of meaningless activity. And it's really horrifying if you think about it for more than two seconds. And and what's so interesting about Camus is he writes in praise of Sisyphus. You know, yeah. uh, is, what is it? Be stronger than your rock. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is very, it's very virile, like manly, like just push that rock. We have and to imagine Sisyphus happy. <laughs> you <laughs> have to imagine Sisyphus happy, exactly. Because that's what it, you know, that's what it is to embrace life, is to just keep doing this basically pointless thing out of this kind of heroic rebellion, et cetera, and so forth. For Camus, it's a response to the purposelessness of existence. But for Yvonne, the question of suicide arises because of evil. Yvonne is very clear-eyed about the world around him. So he doesn't seem especially naive. He sort of is alive to the fact that people are really cruel and wicked, but in particular, he is concerned about the suffering of children. How can we embrace a world where there is this gratuitous, grotesque suffering of children? And he draws upon what are, I think, actual examples. Dostoevsky would clip these examples, but there's one in particular that is just so alarming. So it's the the little boy, eight years old. He throws a stone while he's playing around, and he accidentally hurts the paw of the master's dog. And the general finds out it's the boy, and he takes him from his mother, and he locks him away. And then the next morning, the guilty boy's mother is in front. The boy is let out. He is undressed, and then he is ripped to shreds by these dogs. It brings to light this problem of, will you tell me I should embrace the world? What is it that you're asking me to embrace exactly? Cruelty? Yeah. It's not easy. I mean, I think that's the problem with this but sort it's, of... But it's deeper than it's not being easy. I think Yvonne is thinking it's wrong. I think his resistance is much stronger. It's not just that it's hard. I think he thinks it's wrong. So what is the, what's the response to that? I mean, I think what he says in his rebellion, the, the section where he's talking with Alyosha and the, the title is, is rebellion of that, it's 
uh, that section is called rebellion. I mean, I think he thinks it's a sort of injustice to you're consenting to this world, right? I mean, so he says he's going to hand back his ticket to life in the world, right? So he want, he's rejecting life in the world as an issue of justice. So this issue of cosmodicy, can we justify life in the world as worthwhile, as something we should consent to be a part of? We don't choose to be born, right? But we can choose whether we're going to be a part of this world. And I think part of Yvonne's challenge there is that no, it's actually unjust <laughs> that we that we should be sort of an accomplice to this, right? Because I think he's a very profound character. I think he sees the depth of evil within himself, at least the capacity for evil within all humanity, that we can't just sort of write off this terrible evil as, oh, these are moral monsters. I could never be that, right? So I think there is this sense that the same thing that causes the person to do that is also a part of me, right? And so if I consent to this, we calls it the thirst for life i'm consenting to life in this world and so therefore consenting to everything about it right and so i think that's part of why he thinks it's perhaps an issue of justice unless we're to sort of totally radically transform society right this is this is where he's caught between as i mentioned earlier either this sort of utopian project of sort of making the world anew right or just complete despair and suicide you know i think definitely leaning in the direction of despair and suicide as a matter of justice because he actually despairs that that somehow you could transform humanity in this way he doesn't understand how you can even love your neighbors if you you know how are you going to radically transform society in this way so yeah i i think it's it's more than just it's difficult although I mean, I think it does show up sort of the problem of the Nietzschean response and even Camus' uh, discussion of the myth of Sisyphus. It's sort of like this, if we could just become godlike, right? And, uh, you know, will our affirmation of the world in spite of everything, right? Well, what are, I mean, I think the point you're putting is what are you actually affirming when you're doing that? And is that something we should affirm, right? And I, I think that's really a profound point that Ivan makes, Dostoevsky makes through Ivan. And Dostoevsky, you know, he actually, he says in letters that he, he gave a more profound articulation to an atheist worldview than any other atheist that he knew, right? Uh, because I think he sort of understood the, the depth of, of the problem of life affirmation here, and that it's not just a kind of willpower that's going to get us there. It's not this sort of heroic defiant stance because some things are actually crushing. We can be crushed. Terrible, horrendous evil happens in the world, right? And so you can raise the question of, as he does, whether we should in fact consent to being a part of this world, right? Um, so it's not just some kind of French existentialist bravado to, to raise this sort of, you know, is life really worth living? I mean, it really, I think, uh, I mean, Camus was influenced by by Yvonne, and I think uh, in part influences that question, is life worth living? Is it right to live? There's this very intimate moment between Yvonne and Alyosha in the chapter Rebellion, Alyosha's response to Yvonne when he says, I must respectfully return him the ticket, he says, well, that's rebellion. And Yvonne says, one cannot live by rebellion and I want to live, but tell me straight out. Imagine that you yourself are building the edifice of human destiny with the object of making people happy in the end, of giving them peace and rest at last. But for you, you must inevitably and unavoidably torture just one tiny creature, that same child who was beating her chest with her little fist. 
You must raise your edifice on the foundation of her unrequited tears. Would you agree to be the architect on such conditions? Tell me the truth. And Alyosha says softly, no, I would not agree. So he too can't really accept this higher harmony. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's certainly rejecting, rightly, a kind of consequentialist justification for suffering, that somehow it's, it's made all right if you could bring about some greater good. It'd be okay, as it were, to, to do that torturing of the one child. I mean, this would be the consequentialist justification, if you could bring about some greater good. And so Alyosha and Dostoevsky, insofar as his perspective is ex- expressed through Alyosha and Zosima, is rejecting that as a solution to the challenge that Ivan puts that it, it's not it can't be that it's all right that we that there's this terrible evil in the world you can say oh it's okay because there's this this greater good you're achieving and Dostoevsky actually thought that uh, Ivan's challenge was unanswerable purely on intellectual grounds alone uh, that there wasn't some philosophical argument that you could give so I mean you know obviously there's in the philosophy of religion today there's a huge literature on the problem of evil uh, and various kinds of responses but I think I think one thing that's very instructive from the brothers Karamazov is is precisely that there's no sort of like okay here let me give you an account right a, a standard theodicy a justification of God that's going to show everything to be all right so for for Dostoevsky he thought this any response had to take place on uh, a more existential plane a way of living that could somehow see life as good right that we could in, again in spite of these terrible things still find our way to an affirmation of life right not to affirm this evil but to affirm that life is still fundamentally good so let's talk about the response that comes from father zosima what what is supposed to be the proper response to evil i mean it's supposed to be this self-transcending love but what does that look like yeah and i think this is the crucial issue and at the beginning of uh, when Ivan and Alyosha are talking, one of the first things that Ivan says is he has this thirst for life and that there are some things he loves without knowing why. And uh, Alyosha says to him, I'm, I'm so glad that, to hear that you love you love life. Uh, whereas, I mean, Ivan sort of sees this as more of a problem. Ultimately, he sees it as a problem that we're sort of consenting to, to being in the world by, a, a, you know, having this sort of natural love of, of life and of some people, at least for him, uh, without knowing why. And, and so I- Ivan says to uh, Alyosha, he says, um, so first of all, Alyosha says to him, I'm just looking at this quotation, he says, I think, I think everyone should love life before everything else in the world. And Ivan responds, love life more than its meaning. And then Alyosha says, certainly love it before logic, as you say, certainly before logic, only then will I also understand its meaning, right? And so part of the claim here is that um, there's a certain kind of understanding that we can only come to if we have this standpoint of, of disposition and, and uh, attitude of, of love for the world. So love is in this way revealing. This is what I call uh, transfiguring loves. I wrote an essay 
of that title, sort of exploring this idea of, of a transfiguring love, a kind of love that brings into view a certain vision of the world. And so just to give one other example from Ivan and then a contrast with Zosima. So Ivan says that, I mean, one of the famous remarks I had mentioned earlier is that Ivan says that uh, without belief in God, uh, in the immortality of our souls, uh, everything is permissible. It doesn't make sense to love your neighbor as yourself. And even says, you know, it, it's, it wouldn't be surprising if we, it leads to this sort of rapacious uh, world of, of, you know, people, I mean, he actually refers to cannibalism, you know, that it, sort of everything becomes permissible without, without God. And so uh, I think a lot of people sort of, they, they, they'll talk about that, for instance, in an ethics class where they're talking about religion and morality. But in fact, Zosima says pretty much the opposite thing to that. He says that, in fact, uh, you know, he's, he's talking to uh, a woman uh, who is struggling with faith, and his advice to her is that, in fact, she should strive uh, to love her neighbor actively and tirelessly, uh, and it's only in this way that she'll come to fully believe in the existence of God, uh, in the immortality of her soul, uh, sort of come to this uh, transfigured uh, vision, as it were. And he also just talks about loving the world. Later in his, his sermons, he talks about love all God's creation, the whole, whole and every grain of sand within it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day, and you'll come at last to love the world with an all-embracing love. I mean, it, it, in a way, it's, it's hard to make an argument here because it's, it's sort of a path of a spiritual transformation by which we, we learn to love other human beings and love the world. And in that kind of way of, of loving the world and others, we, we come to see the fundamental goodness. So again, that's where it's transfiguring. It allows, it brings into view a kind of goodness that if we, if we close ourselves off from others and from the world, right, we sort of recoil from, in, in, you know, from a legitimate sense of injustice, right, uh, from the world, then we will be cut off precisely from the sources of, uh, we might, you know, in theological terms, we might say the sources of grace within the world. So suppose that I read Dostoevsky and, and you know, I'm convinced and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I need to embrace the world and, and set down this path of self-transcending love. Okay, but now how do I do that? Is it something that I can just bootstrap myself into? Like if I just work hard enough at it, I can become all loving. I can achieve this universal love. I sort of like, you know, ascend the ladder of love through my own hard work and dedication, or do I need help? Like, how does this work? Yeah, I suppose in uh, theological terms, we might talk about this as uh, sort of the relation between nature and grace. And I mean, is that how Dostoevsky would understand it? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think he's he. I mean, I, I I guess I would interpret him as taking something of a cooperative model of the relationship between sort of human agency and divine agency. I don't think he. I think he thinks there is real human agency that we do need to transform ourselves through spiritual practice. You know, I mean, that's part of what Alyosha is trying to do in being a, a novice, right? And he's ultimately sent out in the world to to put this into practice. I think I think there is a. Uh, a sense of cooperation with grace. I think Dostoevsky thinks that that grace, in some ways, circulates in the world. Right, that God is is present in the world and, and present in 
the suffering person, right? That in in opening ourselves to, to love another person or to love the world, we're opening ourselves to God and to God's um, activity in our own lives. Now, it's, you know, I think it's very tricky to talk about grace. I mean, it's, you know, we're sort of, we're at the boundaries of, uh, we're, we're knocking on the door of mystery here. Uh, and so it's hard to talk about it sort of philosophically what's going on. I think that's part of his point is that it really only comes through a kind of opening to to grace, to to grace that's in in the world and in other people and so it's it's really only in loving that you experience you know as he puts it in that that passage i quoted uh, the divine mystery in things right that god is somehow present one thing that really struck me reading dostoevsky is that he you know he doesn't have the highest view of reason he almost it almost seems like he's either distrustful of it one gets the impression in certain moments that he thinks reason you know is sort of a condition of being too proud or or prideful or at least relying too much on reason might make one proud but one also senses that there is in his vision of the human person something higher something that either goes beyond or perfects reason and is somehow necessary. It's a necessary step in this embrace of life. I just wondered if you had the same impression and and maybe could comment about that because, you know, some people, I mean, within the Christian tradition, there's a lot of different ways to understand the relationship between faith and reason. And I I guess maybe I'm asking about that. I think there is a certain uh, wariness of sort of uh, certain kinds of pretensions of reason, and I think he's particularly responding to sort of the Enlightenment philosophers, Diderot, and so forth, who have this you know kind of view that en- with with the Enlightenment comes this sort of setting aside of faith. And so I do think Dostoevsky's sort of concerned to show that uh, to have a, a bit of <laughs> epistemic humility that there's some. There's some areas that we at least can't, uh, as it were, <clears throat> argue out on, on typical philosophical plane. Uh, it's not necessarily irrational. I think precisely as I was saying before, he he wants to say that through this sort of en- engaged response and responsiveness to the world, we do discover a kind of logos, a kind of reason. And I would say this picture I've been developing of Dostoevsky through the brothers Karamazov is you might think rather than uh, faith seeking understanding, it's not opposed to that, but I, I think you might also put it as love seeking understanding. So I think that involves a kind of faith, but I think he's, he's saying that, you know, with, I mean, so faith, hope, and love, the traditional theological virtues go together. And so, uh, I mean, I think you certainly see that, you know, in, in St. Paul's sort of famous uh, encomium on, on love, you know, faith, hope, and love, right? Uh, we see through a glass darkly, you know, and uh, the greatest of these is love. So I think it's, in some ways, a very sort of Christian view. And I think you see this also in Augustine that, you know, the order of your love and how you sort of rightly uh, direct it towards the world sort of operates in tandem with faith, a kind of faith seeking understanding. So I wouldn't say he's a fideist of sort of the Kierkegaardian mold, um, where um, sort of you, you believe because it's absurd or something like that. But rather, um, I mean, I think it is this, this love seeking understanding that as you go deeper 
in love for the world, for one another, trying to, you know, relate yourself to God or to that which is most love-worthy, I think the idea is that you come to a, a deepened understanding. And I think that that's another way of sort of getting at this idea of a transfiguring love or, or a revelatory love. And it's, it's in that way that we sort of come to experience grace uh, that's uh, flowing in the world, as it were, and discover sort of this divine logos. Right. So I wondered if we could uh, just circle back to this idea that we began with, with Christ as the exemplar of the good life. And I th- I mean, I take that to mean that Christ is the fullest embodiment or embrace of this transfiguring love. But of course, Christ dies in a, in a uniquely violent and, and horrifying way. And so are we to think that this transfiguring love, is it uh, meant to give you happiness in this life? Or what, you know, what does it really do for you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a great question. So yeah, I think, uh, of course, you know, Christ says that I've come that you may have life abundantly, right? You know, if, if you keep my commandments, if you love one another, uh, your joy will be complete. And so I think that is part of the promise of uh, the life that's lived in imitation of Christ, that even in spite of the suffering that's in the world, we can still in some way be happy. And, and Zosma makes uh, this point uh, about, you know, following the Christ-like life, that this actually leads to happiness or this abundant life when he says that uh, people are created for happiness, and he who is completely happy can at once be deemed worthy of saying to himself, I have fulfilled God's commandment on this earth. All the righteous, all the saints, all the holy martyrs were happy. Uh, so, and, and of course, the chief commandment here uh, is the, the twofold commandment to love God with all of one's heart and also to love one's neighbor uh, as oneself. And so the idea here is if we follow this path of, of love, then in fact, this is happiness. This is constitutive of happiness. Now, it, it may be um, happiness understood more as not so much uh, simply desire satisfaction, but rather uh, a meaningful life, a deeply meaningful, fulfilling life. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's striking that he's, you know, where he says that all the saints and all the martyrs were happy. And uh, those who, who are, that the person who's completely happy is the one who can say that they have fulfilled God's commandment because that person is going to be the person who's fulfilled the commandments of love. Um, so I think, I think that's, uh, that's sort of the Christian promise, as it were, that I think Dostoevsky seeks to uh, endorse and show the validity of through the depiction of Zosima and Alyosha sort of trying to walk in the path of Zosima, who's walking in the path of Christ. So I think I think that's, uh, you know, this sort of life affirmation is joyful. It's a joyful, to say that, I mean, he says life is paradise, right? I mean, that's a, that's a sort of stance of joyful affirmation. Uh, and he, again, he's saying that in spite of the suffering and the horrendous things that are in the world. I mean, it's hard to comprehend that when you're sort of facing down this this terrible evil, right? But I think that's really where Dostoevsky tries to go in his response to Ivan. Right. So it's a um, 
it's a higher version of love, but certainly not a sentimental or necessarily comforting one. That's right. Yeah, because he, he contrasts this a- act of love with love and dreams, right? This sort of rom- maybe romantic notion. I mean, romantic and sort of the the 19th century idea of romanticism, sort of sentimental. Uh, it's it's really he says it's it's a it's a it's a harsh and fearful thing at times to try to love the world. Uh, and so, but in but in practicing that kind of act of love, uh, the promise is that we can come to this affirmative vision of life and that it's good, it's worth, it's, it's something for which we can feel profound gratitude and uh, take joy in. This is great. Thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, because I, I could obviously keep talking all day. But yeah, hopefully people, hopefully it has wet people's appetites to pick up this massive book, The Brothers K. Thank you so much for speaking with me this afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much, Jennifer. It was a lot of fun. Did you enjoy this podcast? If so, please give us a positive review and let your friends know about it. Also, for more resources on the works discussed in this episode, head on over to our project's website virtue.uchicago.edu. And please also check out our blog at thevirtueblog.com.